Bible's open there at Exodus chapter 20. We're in this series, as you've heard, on the Ten Commandments, also known as the Ten Words. And today we reach the third one, which is actually very brief. It's there in Exodus 20, verse 7. Now, I can still remember to this day an incident that happened, gosh, nearly 40 years ago. I was at school in Kingston at Tiffin Boys' School. And just across the road is another school who were pretty much our rivals in everything. And at that time, they were all boys as well, Kingston Grammar School. And it was a cold winter. I think it might have been 1985. There was a lot of snow that year. And we could see some of the Kingston Grammar boys across the road. And so we decided that we were going to pelt them with snowballs. And they responded in, in form. And then somebody, and I can't remember who it was, decided to put a rock inside a snowball and give them what for. And this snowball, it was quite heavy, was hurled with a lot of force and it went straight into a window of Kingston Grammar School and smashed it to pieces. And then we all ran for our lives. <laughs> now, I don't know how it happened, but somebody talked because within a day, we were all lined up in the headmaster's office. It wasn't a place that I'd ever seen before. And I hadn't actually had any dealings with the head up until that point. All I knew was that his name was The Beak. And he was standing there looking very somber. He was an old man and very dignified. And we were all standing there like this, heads down, looking, trying to look at the shoes, you know, didn't want to make eye contact with him. And he read us the riot act about this snowball and about putting a rock inside it <coughs> and what had happened. And I can't remember anything else about that episode, but I'll tell you what, I can remember one sentence, word for word. He said, our name is Mud with the Grammar School. Now, to be honest, I didn't really care much about the name of Tiffin's school in those days. But something about that comment stung. Our name, our name is Mud now with the Grammar School. And we were shamed. And as a punishment, we had to do the head's garden for an entire week of lunchtimes. What's in a name? Quite a lot, if you think about it. There's a lot in a name. This is why organizations are so careful about the actions of their employees and what the employees say in public. A tiny minority can ruin a good name of a whole organization. This is why we have libel laws in the country. Libel gives legal protection for somebody's name. If you look on the Health and Safety Executive website, they actually, a government definition of, what, uh, of this, because it's a matter of safety, you should be on guard against making statements which could be defamatory. A defamatory statement is one which injures the reputation of another person. It tends to lower him or her in the estimation of right-thinking members of society. So it injures a person's reputation, libel. This is why, friends, we feel so angry and so really hurt, cut, cut to the core, if somebody tells lies about you or they spread slander because it's your name. You see, a name isn't just a name. It represents the entire person. A name is to do with your reputation, your standing, your relationships, if your name is defamed in a community, it affects everything. 
Now, we live in a particularly nasty cultural moment where the power of social media means that a person's name can be quickly ruined before they've even had a fair trial. We call it the cancel culture. But a name is a very precious thing. The way in which people talk about others, the things they say, affects their standing in a community, be it gossip and slander or honor and praise and good report. And the same thing applies in churches and Christian organizations. And one of the sad things and a sad reality is that because we live in this culture, we swim in the soup, we breathe the air, Christians can start to act like the world outside. I know pastors whose ministry has been destroyed through their name being destroyed by people who were acting behind the scenes. It only takes two people to split a church. One to start talking, the other to start spreading. Now that's us. What about God? God's good name is important to him, just as any human being's name is to the person who bears it. That stands to reason. And the main representatives of the name of, the, of God in this world are the people of God. First the Israelites, now the church. That's why this is vital, because we are representing God and his name in the world. And this goes really deep. This is actually a key point from the book of Exodus. Uh, we thought about this earlier in the year. Exodus, the whole book, is written for us to know the Lord, to know him. That's why it's in the Bible. It's primarily a book about knowing God through personal experience. Back in chapter 5, verse 21, a key question is asked by Pharaoh. This is the question that the book is going to answer. Who is the Lord? And the word Lord there is actually his personal name, Yahweh. Who is Yahweh? And Yahweh's answer to Pharaoh comes in chapter 9. He says this, Pharaoh, by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, here's the purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God wants his name, his fame, his character, his essence, his intentions to be declared to every nation. Not just one people group, the whole earth. God wants true knowledge, true reputation, true statements about him to be published abroad and accessed by everyone. And that name is defined most fully later on in the book of Exodus in chapter 34. And the scholars say that this, the way this is written is actually... a a way that could be remembered so people would know how to define God's name. He passed in front of Moses, Exodus 34, proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, if you're wondering what that means about the third and fourth generation, listen into last week's sermon. But the central issue here at stake for God is that the declaration of his name to the world. We just prayed it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. You see, hallowing his name is connected to his kingdom coming in the world. The central issue is the declaration of God's name to the world and the effect that hearing that name will have on people. Will people be drawn to it, attracted to it, or will they be repelled by it? Or perhaps just remain indifferent? So this matter that the third commandment touches is actually really big. It goes to the heart of everything because it's to do with God's intentions for the world. If his name is tarnished or dragged down, or misrepresented by his people, God will not take this hindrance to his intentions lightly. An Old Testament scholar called Terence Fretheim writes this, at the deepest level, use of God's name is a matter of mission. At the deepest level, the use of God's name is a matter of mission. So the people of God will take the third commandment with proper seriousness we want to do that today and I want to do it by looking at three aspects I haven't got three clever headings I'm sorry all I came up with was this we're looking at the negative aspect the positive aspect and the gospel aspect firstly the negative aspect have a look with me again at chapter 20 verse 7 you shall not misuse the name of Yahweh your God for Yahweh will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name okay Kind of straight, simple enough on the surface, but what specifically does it mean? What's being prohibited here? It seems to cover a wide range of things. Now, this obviously includes using God's name flippantly or in a frivolous way or pointlessly or irreverently, speaking of him in a way that doesn't reflect his greatness and majesty. Speaking of God in a jokey way or a light way. Clearly, that's misusing his name. It forbids us to say things about God that are false, something untrue, because that would drag his reputation down. Now, in a legal setting, it forbids us to swear by God's name that we're going to tell the truth, and then lying, we call that perjury. Other people have suggested that this commandment refers to using God's name in a way that wants to harm other people, calling on the name of God to curse someone. In the end, you know, this commandment covers a pretty broad range of things. It's deliberate. It's not just nailing it down to one narrow application. And by the way, let me just say, there are several Bible passages where, uh, that talk about the use of God's name in taking an oath. And that's fine when it's done in sincerity and truthfulness. Uh, for example, Deuteronomy 6.13 says, Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Psalm 63 is another reference. Psalm 63 verse 11 says, The king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silent. So it's not wrong to take an oath in God's name if you're doing it sincerely and truthfully. But the key issue here is that where the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol, that commandment prohibits the worship of God through visual representations. The third commandment talks about verbal representations. So the first commandment is you shall have no other gods besides or before this one. 
The second commandment says you don't make a visual representation of him and worship him falsely. And the third one says you think about your verbal representation of him. As a sign of their respect for God, the people were to take the greatest caution when talking about him or using his name. They were to say nothing that might affect another person's true appreciation of God and his character and his nature. So nothing should be done that in, in God's name that was inappropriate, you know, blaspheming or taking false oaths and statements or anything unnecessary. Or as some of the prophets later did, to announce things in God's name that actually weren't true. They just made it up. That was a grievous thing to do, breaking this commandment. Or even to misrepresent God and his nature when you're chatting to someone. So we have to ask with this negative aspect, friends, how do you talk about God? How do you talk about him? Just imagine for a moment this week, the next time you're speaking about God to someone, Jesus Christ himself is standing right next to you. The Lord Jesus himself standing at your side, just listening. Doesn't say anything. He's silent. What would he think about the way you speak of God? There's a sobering second half to this verse. The reason why we shouldn't misuse God's name is for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now, there's consequences there. What are they? We want to know, don't we? We want to know the details. But the answer is it doesn't give the details. Just as there's a broad application of what honoring God looks like, so there's a potential consequence for misusing it that could be quite broad. We know from the Bible that God's justice is unbiased and impartial and proportionate. He takes the nature of the offense into account, but it says he won't hold anyone guiltless. What that really means is he won't let them just get away with it. It's a serious matter. How do we speak about God? That's um, the negative aspect. But every commandment is like a coin with two sides. Every commandment in the Ten Commandments that has a, a strong negative aspect also has a very strong positive aspect. And that's our second point today. Let's remember, shall we, the name of God, the name Yahweh, is God's name. It's the name that's meaning and significance was patiently explained to Moses back in chapters 3 and 4. The name of the one true and living God. The one who is who he is and will be who he will be. He doesn't rely on anything else. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He's the one who keeps his promises. The one who promised to be faithful to this people. Just the mention of this name connected a slave nation whose dignity had been stripped, back to their ancient forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the wonderful promises that God had made to them, that he would fill the earth with their descendants and bless the, every family on earth through their children. This is God's salvation name. It's the name of the one who comes to the rescue of his people. Exodus chapter 6, 
verse 6 says, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. This is the salvation name of God, the one who rescues. And so it must be treated with the highest respect. And even today, Ben referenced this earlier, many Jewish people make no attempt to use or even pronounce this name. They refer to God simply as Hashem, which means the name. And since it is God's name, it indicates intimacy. He's told us his name, specially, intimately, personally. Other nations may refer to him as God, or the God of the Israelites, but not as Yahweh, his personal name, the name by which his people, who he called his treasured possession, can know him and love him and be acquainted with him. We might say on first name terms. And this is why his name must be treated with the utmost respect. And these thoughts lead us to the positive aspect of this commandment, which is really very glorious. You see, what I want to do today is not give you a slap wrist, bad Christian because you did wrong. I don't want you to to come out of here feeling paranoid about being a Christian. I want you to see the potential of this commandment. Here it is. Christian friend, we can represent God to the world. You can, whoever you are. It's not about your abilities. You're shy. You're not very good with words. You, you, you struggle around people. You're anxious. So you, you get depressed. It doesn't matter about you. You don't have to be a great speaker or anything else. You, little you, can represent God to the world. And that is a remarkable thought. One way we do it is by our prayer and praise. We've been doing it already this morning, singing his praises. The Psalms say, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him, make him great with thanksgiving. I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. God's name, though, is to be declared even more widely than in the congregation. For this I will extol you, O Lord, says the psalmist, among the nations and sing praises to your name. Indeed, we boast of the name of the Lord our God with a worldwide goal in our eyes. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. We're a people who are on the move, with a God who is on the move and wants his name to be glorified and known all around the earth. Now, the name of God is too easily associated with empty phrases or easy religion or the latest political ideas and social ideas. I am grateful, actually, that in this country we don't have... Christianity strongly identified with one political party. There are Christians MPs in the Labour Party, the Lib Dems and the Tories. And that's always been the case. We don't have one party that says it's God's party. Because when that happens, it tends to dishonour God's name. It tends to drag it down. Because it always debases the currency that it's using. God's name gets dragged down to the level of the context in which it is used. People hear you talking about God and they associate the name of God with a cause that they actually might want nothing to do with. They won't be drawn to that God and the name won't receive its due honour. Remember, at the deepest level, use of God's name is a matter of 
mission, of being on mission to the world. A Christian friend, let me just say this, it goes as broad as this. Your life is a shop window to a watching world. People who meet you and chat to you, spend time with you, are seeing a picture of God's name, of what he is like. You're always representing Jesus. The third commandment says, don't misrepresent him. Honor him, love him, show his glory. We can summarize it like this. this is a quote from a commentator, John Durham. He says, the third commandment is, is not directed towards God's protection, but towards Israel's. God's name must be honored, blessed, praised, celebrated, invoked, pronounced, and so shared. To treat God's name with disrespect is to treat his gift lightly, to undermine his power, to scorn his presence, and to misrepresent to the family of humankind his very nature as the one who always is. Now that phrase, for me, I think is where the electricity of this command connects with the life of our church. We don't want to misrepresent to the family of humankind his very nature. What that says is that we here in South London are representing to the family of humankind the nature of God by our lives and our lips. What do people learn from the book of your life? The book of your lips about the Lord, about Jesus Christ, the one who loved you and gave himself for you. When you honor God with your life and lips, others will be drawn to the Savior. The negative aspect, the positive aspect, finally, the gospel aspect. We're going to move now right up to the present moment. What does this mean on Monday morning, Wednesday night, Thursday afternoon, Friday night? What does this mean for us? You know, we're not Israelites traveling uh, up the road in Palestine to the promised land led by Moses. We are the new Testament, new covenant people of God led by one greater than Moses, rescued from a deeper slavery to sin and death, heading towards not a physical land, but the new heavens and the new earth. We are God's people now, representing him. How has the Lord's name become wonderful to you? How has the Lord's name become wonderful to you? I believe it happens in something like the way that a lover's name becomes wonderful to a lover. There was a time in my life when the name Melissa meant absolutely nothing to me. I didn't know anyone by that name. To be honest, when I heard it, I thought it was a bit posh. And I had a reversed snob chip on my shoulder. I'm not proud of that. There are plenty of snobs who are from a working class background. Then I met this person and I did think she was a bit posh at the time. And over time, you see, this name, Melissa, which means a, a bee, like a honeybee, became wonderful to me, like no other name. Because I learned 
I could trust this person completely. What a feeling that is. Because she brought joy into my life where before I was gloomy. Because she stood by me and times came to my rescue in times of trouble and despair. Because her constant and faithful love has carried on through good times and bad times. She's been very patient now for 25 years, a quarter of a century. Now when you know that somebody has done that for you, they mean that to you, you, you know that then their, their very name becomes wonderful. And you don't want it to be dishonored and misused. And that's true for your friends, isn't it? The name of your mates is precious. It's true for your mum, surely. The name of your mother is precious. If you're married, the name of your spouse is precious. Then how much more the name of your maker and your redeemer? How much more the name of God, especially the name by which he's made himself known to us now, the name of Jesus? Have you learned that you can trust him completely? Has he brought joy to your life? Has he come to your rescue in times of trouble and times of despair? Is his love faithful, constant, and true? Is he devoted to you? He is the one who, although he was in his very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped or used to his own advantage. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a slave, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted Jesus to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. John Newton was a slave trader. He actually had committed rape. He was an abuser and a foul person who hated God. He wanted nothing to do with Christianity. He was dramatically converted, saved, we would say. And he gave his life to Jesus Christ. He came under Jesus' rule. And the name that he once hated became actually the sweetest name in the world to him. Newton applied as a candidate to the Church of England to be a vicar. To his surprise, he was accepted. They'll take anyone. I'm joking. He wrote to his wife, Oh, what zeal, faith, patience, watchfulness and courage will be needed for my support and guidance. My only hope is in the name and power of Jesus. May that precious name be his ointment poured forth to your soul and mine. May that power be triumphantly manifested in our weakness. He called on the name of Jesus when God changed his life and he served him with all his powers. My only hope is in the name and power of Jesus and that's the same for you and me. And Newton wrote a hymn and I want to sing it with you today. This captures what Jesus means to his people. It says, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. We're going to sing four verses, and as we do it, 
Let's renew our commitment to the worship of no other gods, to worship the true God truly, and to speak his name with reverent love. Let's stand and sing.